On our podcasts, we've been saying beginners learning subsistence farming. But are we still beginners? Welcome to Longleaf Breeze, subsistence farmers using three simple principles, approaching but never reaching subsistence. It's got to be fun while we're doing it, and we don't make all misstatements. And now, Lee and Amanda Borden. Thanks, Adrian, and welcome to our podcast of March 22nd, 2012. And you may note a very subtle change to the introduction that Adrian makes. For the first time, we are no longer saying we're beginners learning subsistence farming. <laughs> so see, I was asking the right question there at the beginning. I guess the answer is no, right? We we're not. We have decided that uh, we are beginners no more. And um, that's, uh, I guess, the topic of our conversation today. Just to go back and recollect what we've learned during these roughly two and a half years that we have been doing this. We call it two and a half years because that's when we actually moved here. Yeah, it was November 2009. Even though we did plant a small garden in May or so of that's right. that summer, but we didn't live here. So we weren't able to tend it all the time and we didn't have a fence around it. And we've, you know, numerous times mentioned how shocked we were. <laughs> Shows how little we knew when we came back and it was gone because the deer had gotten it. <laughs> well. Let's go back and talk a little bit about the things we didn't know when we started. Um, one of my favorite recollections is the day you and I were planting a garden for the first time, and we were reading on the back of the seed packet that it said that we should form a hill when we planted This is squash. for squash. Yeah, squash seeds, right. And neither one of us knew what they meant by that. Yeah, we, I mean, we figured it out, and it said it should be about 12 inches in diameter. So we got the tape measure out, and we measured, and we made ourselves a hill, and, and we had squash that summer. I mean, we really were very lucky, because that was before the squash bugs discovered us. So now we know what the hill is, and I guess we've also figured out that it doesn't really matter much right. whether last, you use a hill Yeah, or last squash. year I didn't use hills, and... That was not the, there were problems with the squash, but this, the, the lack of hilling had nothing to do with it. That's right. And we also talked a little bit about, um, we, we've learned an awful lot about pests. Yes, um, because we've attracted just about every type. I suppose the first one and most important one is probably the deer. Yeah. And because the deer were so devastating, that was the first thing, first lesson we learned and the first corrective measure we had to take mm -hmm. and then of course um, after we got the deer problem solved then that gave us the opportunity to enjoy a whole new smorgasbord of pests yes in fact as i was saying the first squash we planted <clears throat> two and a half years ago or yeah it was about that really from what i have since learned it is possible that the squash bug simply didn't no, weren't in this area because there'd never been squash there before. It was, exactly. It was, a, or any kind of cucurbits. It was simply raw woods, raw land. So we have, we put out just exactly what they wanted and they found us and boy, and, in a big and you way. you keep that billboard saying, squash here, please come enjoy. You keep yeah. that up long enough and pretty soon the squash bugs yep. notice. And, and they did. And the first tomatoes we planted didn't see a single hornworm that first year. 
And then the then second the next year, year. we uh, that was the year we were pretty much devastated by yeah. hornworms. Yeah. And then the year following was the basil and uh, what did we plant with the basil? Marigolds. Marigolds. Mar- yeah, which I plan to do again this year. And, and we will do well. that because it does seem to uh, do a lot mm-hmm. to keep the hornworms under yeah. control. But we don't know what new and exciting pest we will discover <laughs> this year. Stink bugs have been particularly bad, too. And, and unfortunately for organic gardeners, uh, they don't seem to have a natural predator. <laughs> and on my right. side, on the fruit side, I know that when we started, I had never heard the term chilling hour for fruit trees. Well, of course, I have learned since then that chilling hours make an awful lot of difference. And I can pretty much tell you within 50 hours or so, the chilling hour of everything we're growing, because mm-hmm. uh, I keep up with that, it has become very important for me to know what the chilling hours of everything we're growing are. So um, that's one of the many things that we have learned. So we've slowly built up this uh, bank of knowledge between our ears about how to do this. You know, it's interesting how local our knowledge is. I know an awful lot about how to grow fruit in central Alabama. You know an awful lot about how to grow vegetables in central Alabama. But if somebody picked us up and dumped us in Illinois, I'm not sure we would know a thing about how to deal with it. Except that we would know to go to our local extension agent and start asking the questions. Well, that's true. We know enough to know (laughs) what we don't know and that that is so important. I think that's what I didn't realize. The first year we ordered some seeds, we went online and we knew we wanted organic and sustainable and all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We found some great seed companies, but we didn't pay any attention to whether or not the cultivars would work in this uh Zone, you know, zone you're eight. right. We didn't pay much attention to that at all no, the first year. No, so I don't think, even though you said yes, our our knowledge has become local, and I think that's evolved since we went through the Master Gardener program and have uh, attended conferences that are at least regional, and we've had a chance to network with other people from Alabama, and to and and you know, reading Barbara Kingsolver about knowing your local food supply and how important it is to eat locally, et cetera. Um, We've come to that point. We didn't start there, but it doesn't worry me if we got, if we were to be plopped somewhere else. I mean, heck, you know, I've talked many times about how I fantasize about moving to the UK. If I did, I'm sure I would adjust to that, that zone of the earth and that latitude and that climate that's different those you know, weeds. You're right. I'm sure we would adjust. I would hope that we would begin the adjustment process with an extraordinary amount of humility. Yes, we because would. we would realize how localized our knowledge was, and uh, and how much we would depend on people there to help us understand how it's different, just as we have depended upon people here. Yes, uh, and, just, and I wanted to. Well, go ahead. Go ahead. Well. I wanted to make this point, too, and it's a, it's a case in point. It was less than a year ago, I think, when our daughter-in-law, Michelle, who lives in Southern California, asked me about diseases of tomatoes because she was having some problems. But by then, I had already learned it doesn't do me a whole lot of good to think about or, or study the diseases that occur on tomatoes in Alabama because she's in a totally different climate. She's in a different zone. She's in a different... Um, you know, the the watering needs are different. She's probably um, 
has access to different cultivars. The point is, my first piece of advice to her was find your local extension agent. And I went online and looked at the California extension system websites because I understood that. So I'd like to think that that was, that's been part of the learning curve for me. And I'm sure it has been for you, too. And just to toot the horn of our Alabama Cooperative Extension System for a moment, what was fascinating to us is to learn that the California um, Cooperative Extension Service website was really not quite as good, not quite as useful as Alabama. Not for that particular question that I had. I can't make a blanket statement True. about everything. All I just we know, know that if, for, to answer that one question, if we you're know right. what we had available to us in Alabama, and we expected to find at least that much available yes. in California. And it was interesting to see we were not able to find Yeah, that. I was surprised that if you wanted a comprehensive review of diseases, viruses, you know, pests, whatever, about tomatoes, affecting tomatoes, you're better off living in Alabama in terms of the information that's a, So a big tip of the long breeze, longleaf breeze hat to our cooperative extension system. Just a phenomenal benefit that we people here in Alabama right. enjoy. We're grateful to them. Well, I, I'm remi- reminded as we talk about this of our friend Don Cermak, who told us when we were first beginning to understand how to deal with all of this, that one of the most important things you learn after you've been doing this a while is what's normal. Yeah. And that is so true. We've learned what is normal so that we can spot abnormalities and say, well, that's unusual. It shouldn't be doing that. Or, mm-hmm. you know, that's a different color from what we're accustomed to seeing that cultivar be. Or yeah. it, it should be taller than that by now. It should be, the fruit should be bigger or, or smaller or whatever. So, Yeah, and, and certainly I think this, we know that the weather's not normal here this year. It's gotten warm so much faster that I, I would look at my plants and say, oh, there shouldn't be this many weeds by now. That's not normal. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, is that ever true. And we were talking about this just this morning. This is the, the spring that I hope I will remember as the first one that our friends greeted with palpable dread of what it brings. This long, hot summer that we're all expecting now, has really scared all of us, including mm-hmm. all of the climate change deniers. I mean, even those uh, who are saying... Do you think saying, they're scared? Do you think they're scared? Oh, absolutely. They're probably saying, oh, it's just an aberration. Well, they may be saying that, but for whatever reason, they're just as terrified as we are of what all this means. Yeah. Um, and just keep in mind, when you're a climate change denier... You've got a certain oath of loyalty to the BS that, that that you have to keep spouting, but that doesn't keep you from being terrified when you see the right the handwriting on the wall. Yeah. So, um, you know. And at the very least, uh, the mildest statement I can make is probably what we were talking about earlier as we went out and walked around the property today, which is, well, if it feels like this in March, I mean, the first full day of spring, then. What's it going to feel like in July? 
I really don't even want to think about that. Don't want to think about it. Exactly. You just want to put it out of your mind and and enjoy the. Uh, it, we're here in the late afternoon. It's uh, quite pleasant. So. Um, yeah, but it has to get to the late afternoon before it before is. Before it can become quite pleasant. <laughs> and again, first full day of spring. Keep All that right. In mind. Well, let's talk about how our roles here seem to be shifting. I remember the first time we went to Southern Sog, we were eager, bushy-tailed learners, just soaking up information everywhere we went. I was writing down every word anybody said in any seminar, breakout session, uh, plenary session, whatever. I took uh, comprehensive notes of everything. And I was going to different sessions, and we would come together at the breaks, and we would say, I just learned that. We'd yeah. compare yeah. notes about what we'd learned, and we were all excited. It was fun. It was fun. It was exciting. And we were so eager then. And, you know, I guess we're still eager, but I find us have our eagerness seems more directed at teaching than at learning these days. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm still, I know I'm still learning, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes. I th- hopefully, you never quit learning. But I do want to get this place where we are in shape so that I feel comfortable in a teaching role, so that I'm not embarrassed to say, oh, and I'm not embarrassed if I, if I don't know something, because that's something I learned a long time ago as a college professor. It's okay to not know something, depend, well, if you, you better know your basic stuff, but you know, not to know some factoid out there, as long as you know how to find the answer, if it's there, if it can be there. So that's not what bothers me. What bothers me is that some young Turk is going to come snooping around here and say, well... And see that pile of cardboard out on Veg Hill yeah, and make ooh, a judgment about you, you based on the fact that. you've got a pile of cardboard <laughs> yeah, on Veg Hill. It's actually waiting to be removed. But the point is, um, like the first year, I didn't really understand why we needed cover crops. I didn't understand. I thought it looked good if you're, you know, when you were cleaning everything off at the end of the season to just have this bare soil. Well, now I know bare soil is never good. Yeah, that's one of the things we've learned during these two and a half years. Soil doesn't rest. Soil's either getting better or it's getting worse. And the way it's getting better is if you're using cover crops and you're keeping it active and so forth. Yeah. If you're not doing that, it's just getting worse. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. not. Soil doesn't rest. And yeah. it's still, it's fascinating how many of our friends think that soil needs to rest. Yeah, but it really doesn't. But. And and one thing that we're is helping us, I think, with our teaching function, at least we hope it will do that, um, it would be all these videos that we're making, organic moments. I'm very proud of the organic moments videos. These are things, uh, because we're working on our Advanced Master Gardener certification, That this is the way we have contracted with the uh, Alabama Cooperative Extension System to, quote, pay back, close quote, the time that's being invested in us so that we can learn to do this. And we're making these videos, and I just think they're very useful. So I'm I'm excited about what we're yeah. able to do there. And we have lots of ideas, so we'll keep those churning out at some, at some point in the future. Just worked uh, yesterday, as a matter of fact, on a uh, new one about extending water lines to the compost. So that'll be yeah. up uh, shortly. In case and, you didn't know, compost needs water. Yeah, and I think <laughs> that's a basic a thing I didn't for know us before. To keep that compost well watered, yeah. Uh, yeah. which we'll be able to do now because we've got uh, water line extended to the compost pile. Right. But on the other hand, we're still learning. 
Yes. Like, uh, for example, we went to a grafting workshop not too long ago. I learned that it's very easy to cut your thumb when you're grafting. <laughs> if you don't do it right. Yeah, you sliced your thumb wide open yeah. in that grafting workshop. But I also learned a lot watching mas- the masters do it, the people who really knew what they were doing. And we have another w- grafting workshop we're supposed to go to in a couple of weeks. So. And it's interesting. I don't know that we will be teaching at that workshop, no, but we, we won't, won't be. be learners either. We'll be basically assisting Mallory Kelly, our extension agent, as she works to teach people how to graft. So uh, that'll be fun for us and also uh, another way we can give back. But I was thinking one of the things that we're learning is our latest critter who has vexed us. Um, We have deer fence that we had hoped would keep out rabbits, but we have some kind of critter who is eating your tender early spring veg. Yes, and let's talk about our newest experiment. Uh, the, the, what I did about two, three days ago is I put a whole row of some spring brassicas out, including a couple of little cabbage plants at the very north end of the row. And um, we did not have time to do anything. We're, they're just inside the deer fence. Came back the next morning, and I'd say out of maybe 18... 20 plants, the top two had been just eaten away. Again, something, either a rabbit or a squirrel, those are my theories. Uh, We've been unable to capture this creature on the uh, wildlife camera, but uh, I realized, okay, we won't have any of these left if we don't do something additional. So yes, uh, day before yesterday, you and I just about killed ourselves, but it's done. We're putting out um, some hoops and some chicken wire to completely cover that row of vegetables. And so, so we actually have them in a little chicken wire cage mm-hmm. inside the deer fence. Yeah. And so That's I walked a, out the next morning and they were okay. So we call that a desperation measure. Yeah. But at this point, we are kind of desperate. We are desperate, right. Um, and as we have noted so many times, we are so identifying with poor Mr. McGregor. Yes, he's my new hero. He and Elmer Fudd, the crazy wabbits and <laughs> you know all, you the, all the creatures that want to eat the my hard-earned vegetables off that, that I've worked so hard to put out, not to mention the poor little vegetables have a right to their lives too. So, uh, but and, and one thing I should say on a positive note that we have learned is I was terrified about putting asparagus in the ground because I thought, oh, I'll kill it or it won't work or it just sounded so uh, complex putting in asparagus crowns and all the digging and all. Well, it's coming up and it's looking great. Our ferns, I would say they average um, maybe 9 to 12 inches above the regular level of the soil. So uh, it's overdue. We really need to go ahead and fill in around those ferns uh, now. And I don't know of anything we're waiting on to do that other than just getting some time. And that is happening ahead of schedule. Uh, the, the common, At least according to what yeah, we were led to expect. The, the common uh, knowledge about it or the practice has been oh, put them in in the spring, and kind of over the course of the summer, you're going to fill your ditch in and have everything on your soil at the ground level at the end of the summer. My theory is, again, this warm weather that's hit so soon, everything just shot out of the ground, and so therefore the process is is, um, occurring more rapidly. I think that's the best explanation. But for whatever reason, this was exactly what those little crowns were ready for, and they grabbed the with all the gusto, yeah, 
and they're looking terrific. So we're just delighted. Yeah. And hopefully we'll have a follow-up to our asparagus video so that people can see what we're talking about. I hope about. so. I hope we would, we'll do uh, planting asparagus crowns in Alabama first follow-up or whatever and um, talk about, you know, it's time to fill in around those ferns and secure it with some mulch as well so we can keep the weeds yes. from being a problem. Yeah, that's another another project for another day. And we are out of time, so we will say goodbye. Hope you have a wonderful week, and we look forward to visiting with you soon. You've been listening to Longleaf Breeze with Lee and Amanda Borden. You can call the farm at 334-625-8682. Send email to letters at longleafbreeze.com. Our address is P.O. Box 780-446, Tallahassee, Alabama, 36078. Visit us at longleafbreeze.com to learn more about the farm, to browse our archive, and to look over our planting database. You can also read the daily farm log and check in with Lee and Amanda. That's longleafbreeze.com. Thanks for listening. See you next week.